Hello and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, the new program on WEHC-FM and WISE-FM that explores the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide and what we can do to overcome it. I'm delighted today to have as my guest a dear friend and colleague, Cody Longing. Cody is from Washington State, grew up in Washington State, traveled about for uh, a number of years, is back and practices law and also teaches history and politics at Eastern Washington University. Cody's going to tell us a little bit more about himself in the course of the interview. Uh, Cody, welcome, and thanks so much for being on Two Worlds. Thanks so much for having me, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So let's start with that. Give us a, a little bit more background than the super brief bit that I just uh, said, uh, kind of leading up to how you got to where you are today, starting with your, your roots on the farm. Yeah, I was I was raised the only child of a single mom. Um, our material life was pretty Spartan growing up. Um, we uh, the first few years of my life, we were in a, a rural part of California. We were in a university town, but it was um, really rural focused, agriculturally focused specifically. And then we moved to eastern Washington when I was five. Um, people think of when they hear Washington, they think of rainy Seattle, but Washington has a desert in the middle, and then we have some of the foothills of the Rockies and pine forests out here. But we also have some of the most fertile farmland in the world because of glacial activity during the last ice age. We measure our topsoil in feet here. So it's uh, pretty right, can I Can I just ask, are you saying that to rub it in? <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. No, it's, we've got good topsoil out here. So it's uh, it was a really fun place to grow up. We moved to a small little town of about 7,000. And then uh, my first real job was farming for an older farmer uh, in my church. So that was really kind of the first job I had and became a big part of my identity. I loved farming, the rhythms of it and the just the substance of what you accomplish farming. You know, you water the hay, cut the hay, rake the hay, bale the hay, stack the hay. Uh, I just clear, love that. Clear rhythms. outcomes. Clear outcomes with farming. Very clear outcomes. Not always the can... ones you want, but absolutely you can see them. Yeah. Um, I was very lucky growing up to be good at school. So I went to college here in Eastern Washington. Um, I spent a year on the East Coast working for the National Geographic Society and a small little alternative education nonprofit. And I was, I just lucked into, into responsibilities that I really had no business doing. It was writing, producing, and conducting a series of interviews for National Geographic on the Eastern Shore of Maryland mm. um, of, uh, with with the folks who harvest crabs and oysters out of the bay. Wow. So went out oystering with them and did some really fun filming out there with them. Uh, then I came back to the West Coast and uh, went to law school, got, got very lucky running the gauntlet of uh, admissions testing for law school and went to a great school in California. And then I practiced uh, corporate litigation in Los Angeles and San Francisco for three years, um, which, which is a, is a part of the legal profession. I don't necessarily recommend it's, it's, uh, 
it's very intense. Um, but after that, clerked for a federal judge in Maine, and then moved moved home really to back to the small little town where I grew up in eastern Washington. And as you mentioned, I teach at the local state university here, uh, history and politics. Um, and then practice, now I practice plaintiff side employment law, so we represent workers. Um, and that's that's a really fulfilling way to plug into the world. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, it reminds me of the character, the, the female uh, attorney on uh, Better Call Saul, who forsakes her lucrative career with the big corporate yeah. bank and becomes a public defender. So, well, that's really interesting. And um, I, I think it's fair to say that the the uh, apex of your career has been when you joined Ruby. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, it, it, it was like stumbling into, you know, being able to work on something that I would, would love to do in my free time. Tell us, tell um, us how that came to pass, because really you were one of the very first members, kind of we call them founders, you and I and a handful of other people, to get Ruby going. And and how did how did you enter into that? Yeah, I mean, I think following the, especially the presidential elections, um, like I was, I started noticing, you know, there are these little blue dots in every state, and then a sea of red surrounding them. And I started really thinking about as I was growing up here, talking to farmers, and I, I always talk to everybody I can about politics and religion and all the things you're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so I really just noticed that difference in in attitude, um, and I was actually watching an interview with Eric Adelson, uh, one of our other colleagues, and right at the end of the interview it was about her book Beyond Contempt. Right at the end of the interview, she mentioned, you know, the next thing I want to work on is the rural-urban divide. And I just randomly went to her website and and fired off a message on the contact form, and that's how I got into it. She she, she pulled me in. That's great. Erica will be on the show within the next few weeks. One of the other founders and. It couldn't have been a better thing for Ruby than the fact that you happened to be listening to her and reached out. Cody has been truly, even though um, he's he's rarely been employed to any significant degree by Ruby, but he's been um, an absolutely essential and active part of almost everything we've done. So I wanna I wanna move towards the primary project that you spearheaded with Ruby, but before that, um, you started to hint at it a bit. Um, putting aside Ruby's analysis, which you're very much part of as to kind of how we got into the divide, what what was your own sentiment before you were, you know, before you and Erica connected and you became part of the Ruby uh, clan, you drank the Ruby Kool-Aid before then, what was your sense about the divide, where it was coming from? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that really made an impression on me was the farmer I worked for, He's a small, he was a small family farmer. He's passed away now, but he was a small family farmer, you know, less than 400 acres, but he was born on that farm, spent his entire life, except for a short stint during World War II on that farm. And he had an old dump pit on the farm. And one day he said, you know, man, if an environmentalist ever saw that, I'd be in big trouble. (laughs) And as someone who, you know, at that time thought of myself as an environmentalist, I was taken aback by that statement. But I think over time, it dawned on me that folks in rural places uh, just don't see the need for a lot of rules and regulations, Mm -hmm. because 
you know, out in out in the open, you can do pretty much whatever you want and not inconvenience someone else. <laughs> I understood the need for rules and regulations and, and federal protections, all those sorts of things intuitively, but it wasn't until I moved to the city and, and was sitting in traffic that I thought, we need like some rules of the road here. This is not working well. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, I think people in cities intuitively understand that better because they interact with so many people on a daily basis. And it's just very clear that you just can't go off and do what you want to do. You can't cross the street anywhere you want in a city because it'll cause all these problems. So that, that to me is like this, there's a daily reinforcing mm. of just these different needs depending on, you know, kind of where you live population density wise. So that was yeah. kind of what struck me. Yeah, that makes sense. Although, you know, it, it also strikes me that the people in the city who are rubbing up against a lot more people and conflicts and whatnot than somebody out in the countryside, they're also living from the decisions and the work of people in the countryside. Most of their life is made possible by that. So when if if I'm in, you know, downtown Roanoke or downtown New York demanding that that farmer clean up his pit, I'm right. not I'm not suffering whatever consequences of that that there might be whether it's just a trade-off in time or whatever it is. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. Cool, cool. Well, let's let's move on. So Ruby started with you and me and Erica and Kathy Kramer, a couple other folks just talking about the divide. And and reading a lot of each other's work and many other people, and and beginning to develop kind of a theory of what went wrong, and then putting some meat on the bones of that theory. In the meantime, we started talking about taking on some more concrete projects that could actually help people figure out how to overcome the divide in, in many different ways. And one of them was really your idea, and then you were the really the primary designer and facilitator of it all, and we generally refer to it as our candidate assessment, something we just completed and published just a couple of months ago. So tell us a little bit about that, kind of why you thought we should do it, and then about how you went about pulling the assessment together with help from a few other folks in Ruby. Yeah, I I, I don't want to take credit for the original idea, though. I think Erica was the first one who kind of started the, the, it was the genesis of the idea, and uh, okay. and then I was I was happy to run with it. You know, I think when it comes to overcoming the divide, especially in the context of our political system, people are best served when there are contested elections and close elections. It does not serve rural people well that Democrats don't compete well in rural. You know, so th- th- and what happens is Democrats then really don't care. Uh, about what goes on there and don't think of them as constituents as much and Republicans take them for granted because they know they're going to get those votes every time. So it's kind of a negative feedback loop there. The more the less competitive Democrats have become, the more they've withdrawn or denigrated or given up or dismissed, which then adds to further uh, anger towards Democrats. Exactly. And there's a whole constellation of problems for Democrats in rural and and the Ruby analysis, I think, is is spot on about that, about there being a branding problem that that at least partly must be fixed from the top down in the Democratic Party. But there's also some bottom-up efforts that we can engage in. And the idea of this research was really to focus in on what can campaigns do, what can candidates, Democratic candidates running in rural places do to not only, you know, 
uh, improve their opportunity to get elected, but also to sort of like change the brand, change the culture of the Democratic Party in rural places and change the perception of the Democratic Party as they're running. So it's really kind of a more of a long term strategy. And, you know, one of the ways we selected candidates was not just by people who won in various elections, but we looked at people who outperformed the partisan lean, how, how well you'd expect a Democrat to do. We looked at candidates who did better than you'd expect for Democrats. And we looked at uh, elections between 2016 and 2020 to interview candidates who had done that. And we really took a huge slice of all these candidates from state legislature all the way up to you know federal senate and gubernatorial candidates and got a really good mix of candidates to interview and these were really lengthy interviews a lot of them were you know two or three hours long some of them were shorter but we really got to know these candidates pretty well asked them a whole host of things about their background and their approach to politics and why they're in it and their and where they were running and how much they knew about that place and how their campaigns were run and you know what from fundraising to voter contact uh, to everything in between so, so let we me really let, let me just pause you for one moment so you start with this pool this enormous pool of i i presume thousands of races be, that uh, happened during 2016, 2018, and 2020, looking at s state and federal. And then from that pool, the first filter to narrow it down was that they had to be in predominantly rural areas. M maybe not Correct. totally rural, but predominantly rural. And then you still had a whole bunch of races to look at. And then the next filter was they had to do better than they should have. They had to either win, which some of them did, um, or they had to, like you say, beat the partisan lean significantly, which, which uh, all of them did. So when at the end of those, that process of filtering people out by that, how many candidates did we have to choose from and how many did uh, you and others in Ruby end up interviewing? Yeah, I think we had something like around 200 in the pool. And we ended up interviewing 50 candidates. So that's uh, a pretty good slice of, of the ones who met those two criteria of being in, running in rural and doing better than they should have. We we got close to a fourth of them that we interviewed. Yeah, we were we were really happy with uh, the response we had from candidates, not just in the interview process because I think they a lot of them really enjoyed the interview process itself. I had many tell me, you know, this was really cathartic. I hadn't done sort of like a post-mortem on the campaign before. Uh, but also in the in the contact process, we had a lot of interest and generated a lot of energy in that pool. Yeah. And then the uh, at the end of all that, after all those interviews were conducted, and they were all recorded as well, so that's from whence we took the transcript, so we weren't just kind of pulling out the bits and pieces that we like to hear, but we had the full transcripts of all of these then you did an enormous amount of work distilling down what? The main commonalities, the main learnings? What, what did you do with that, with that very large database of, of candidate comments? Yeah, we tried to look at um, commonality between what they were doing, both in terms of background and in terms of how they're running their campaigns. We also interviewed 
uh, a small subset of folks who had underperformed the partisan lean, done a lot worse than you'd expect. And we were trying to make sure that the commonality we were seeing between our overperformers wasn't also reflected in the pool of underperformers. So we were able to make sure that these things really do have at least a, a, some sort of correlation to the success we were seeing. And did you find that to be the case? Yes. Actually, I was I was uh, somewhat surprised and happy that uh, there was there were very clear differences between okay. the overperformers and underperformers. I would say, you know, after doing, you know, 30-ish interviews, I think I could probably make a fairly educated guess after five or 10 minutes of talking to somebody what pool they would fall into. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then we have this, the, the essence of what the candidates told us, kind of the common threads about the candidates themselves, about the campaigns they ran, and the third area was what? How they communicated, how they talked about things? Yeah, communication was a, was a big piece of what we were we were looking at it. We can talk about, you know, the details there when we jump into the study itself. But yeah, yeah we were able to get a really, I think like candidate recruitment is a really key part of just the political process. And so, you know, really looking at what, what are these candidates like as people? You know, I think was, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will be helpful for folks who are recruiting candidates going forward. Well, I want to transition into that. I'm going to pause for a minute to remind listeners that this is two worlds one country. My guest today is Cody Lawning from Eastern Washington State. Cody's an attorney. He is a professor at uh, Eastern Washington University, and he is one of the founding members of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. Um, we're here on WEHCFM and WISEYs. So we ended up taking those findings and writing a pretty big report. The report, I should mention, also has a tremendous uh, amount of additional material that's uh, research done by other folks that parallels, I'd say. It, it isn't the same, but it parallels the findings we had from that. It's all packaged into a report that's called Can Democrats Succeed in Rural America? And that's a report that we released the week after the midterm elections, and it's gotten both some media play and pretty strong reception from people all over the country. So what, I, what I'm hoping you'll do, Cody, is maybe for each of those segments of the candidate part of the report, beginning with the candidates themselves, hit one or two of what you think were the most important things we found out from those interviews. Sure. So in terms of the candidates themselves, I think what stuck out most to me was the successful candidates posture towards voters in terms of listening versus trying to persuade overperformers tend to be listeners really dedicated to listening uh, first and foremost many of them when i asked them what they were campaigning on or you know what agenda they had when they knocked on doors said i didn't have an agenda my ag my only agenda was to be there to listen to the constituent to find out what was on their mind and what they cared about mm. so so being a listener being somebody who is not just there to you know lead from the front and tell people how it should should and ought to be that's not their posture at all these these are folks who came up in the community often and are really deeply interested in hearing from their voters mm -hmm. uh, so i think that was that was probably a really key part of what we found, and that's you know not, most of these are not surprising to folks, and yet we're we we're seeing a lot of campaigns not implementing them. So, 
you know, another one is is name recognition is is talked about a lot in politics, but you know, we were able to go a little bit deeper than that. Our successful candidates were generally well known and well regarded in their in their districts, and that's because they've spent a long time there and have had some sort of like visibility in the community that brought them respect from folks. You know, that could be, could have been running for a, an office before, or it could have been you know working in the grocery store for twenty years. Those are both actual examples from overperformers that we interviewed. We ended up calling that local fluency that that people were steeped in their particular community or the district so much that everything from the the big issues to the kind of cultural norms and affectations language all that was kind of second nature they were very fluent in local and my goodness that's not only not always the case for liberal and democratic candidates in rural but oftentimes not for liberal and democratic consultants or just uh-huh. er, er, people knocking on doors might be kind of new to the area and, and not know a lot about what's kind of commonly known. So as you say, common sense, but pretty important finding, I think. Yeah. One other quick thing about the candidates that I just want to mention briefly is that these were not, our overperformers were not people who just got into politics to acquire power. These were people who either had some issue they really cared about that, and they wanted to fix something specific in their communities or were recruited by their communities. You know, they were so well-respected that folks came to them and said, will you please run for office? We think you'd be somebody who would really represent our interests wherever they were sending them. So that, that was a, a huge part of the characteristic of these successful candidates as well. Great, great. Say a little bit about the campaigns. What was typical, one or two characteristics of the successful campaigns? Yeah, well, one of them you already mentioned was the having local roots, especially staff and consultants having local roots was was hugely important. But I think probably the most important thing was personal contact with voters, just getting in front of voters wherever they could. That whether that be door knocking, which is still a hugely important part of campaigning, even in rural where the doors are farther apart, uh, or just going to every single event that they could possibly find to go to. That was very important and key to these campaigns was getting in front of voters and making a personal connection. Which a lot of consultants, again, just say, you can't do that in rural. Right. You know, so, but our candidates that did well basically said, well, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how about the message part? What did they do about communications and messaging that set them apart? Well, first of all, in terms of the substance, I just wanted to mention this too. We have this in the sort of the campaign section of the report, but is relevant to the question you're asking here, is that the way that they selected sort of their the issues that they would talk about uh, when they were giving a stump speech or when they were asked about them was that they were reflecting the community itself. What is What does their community care about? And then they were channeling their campaign into those issues. I think people who are in politics a lot get really caught up in the issues mm-hmm. um, and in the weeds. But these successful campaigns were more illustrating that they cared through the way that they talked about those issues. And, and even the issue selection itself is really key to kind of coming full circle to the being a listener part of it. Mm-hmm. These, these candidates were reflecting what their community priorities were. Now, is that ever a dilemma or a challenge for a candidate? Because we all do enter whatever venture we have, and certainly political campaigns, with our own values, our own priorities, 
as to what we think the most important issues of the day are. How do you think those candidates who were really letting the community and their community conversations drive their platforms or drive their issues, how did they strike that balance with the things they also thought were important? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a struggle for any sort of representative in any context. Uh, And I think, you know, transparency with the voters about what they think, you know, in some ways, the selection of political candidates and the election of political candidates should just be, we should all just be out there being our authentic selves and people should be able to gauge, well, I like that authentic self or I like this other different authentic self based on the issues and the way they're talking about it and who they are as a person. Obviously, I think in politics, we try to mold ourselves to be what the voters want or at least appear to be so. But I think the folks we talked to were the type of people who were authentic Mm -hmm. and they were already steeped in their community in a way where their community priorities weren't different than their own, really. I mean, these are people who had been part of these communities for a long time and therefore understood intuitively why folks cared about what they cared about. And oftentimes it matched, but I think when it didn't, they were authentic about that too. And said, I, I understand your perspective on that issue. I feel differently and here's why, but I can respect your point of view. And that was particularly the case around some challenging hot, so-called hot button issues, sometimes guns, sometimes abortion, other things like that. And and throughout it all, even where there were differences, it seemed like one of the things they, they did was they just showed respect for a different point of view and the, and the person with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think guns and abortion came up in, if not every interview almost every interview, yeah. as, as really key hot-button issues. Yeah. So we're almost at time. I'll mention again, my guest is Cody Lawning. He is across the country from me in little old southwest Virginia. He's in eastern Washington state. He's a founding member of Ruby, the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. Let's wrap up. So, Cody, we've got this report out there. It's available on our website can Democrats succeed in rural America? We think it's a great value to not only candidates, for sure, but also campaigns and just rank-and-file liberals and Dems. But we're also talking about maybe doing, taking on some other research, looking at some other questions, and, and you're the likely guy to lead that. In our last minute or so, talk a little bit about what you think some of those other things we might grapple with are. Yeah, I mean, I, I really have been talking to folks about where there's space for follow-up research. Uh, and I think there's a bunch of different ways that we could consider plugging in and, and we'll be considering as an organization over the uh, over the next coming weeks. But, you know, the candidates are only really a part of the story in these places. There are also people on the ground year-round organizing, community leaders, business leaders, other types of groups that we could be interviewing as well, both on their perception of the political parties and how they think those relationships can be uh, healed. I think there's also, um, we've been talking to some campaigns in the wake of the 2022 election. Uh, There's certainly some follow-up research we can do to see if the trends we saw from 2016 to 2020 are continuing in this most recent election. And one of the things that we noticed about some of the sort of like successful rural candidates in this past cycle was that there had been a durable sort of like organizing effort between campaigns. And one of the things I'd like to look at is, are the successful candidates that we've been interviewing, are their efforts resulting in some durable change in their district, even when they don't win? Mm. 
Hmm. Is there some effort that spins out from that that keeps going even after the election? A critical question, because oftentimes in a race, when you lose, there's a huge sort of bottoming out that a lot of the campaign volunteers and the general community of supporters feel. It's like, oh, my God, all of that time and effort and money and look where we are. So if there's a way to build on whatever progress you made, whatever issues you you brought to the fore, uh, whatever relationships you developed, that would be incredibly important. Yeah, and I've got some I've got some interest, too, in like more issue specific research. We mentioned guns and abortion as really key issues. I think it'd be interesting to dive even deeper into those issues. Uh, we did talk about them extensively with with the candidates we talked to, but I think there's a lot more room to investigate approaches to those issues. Yeah. Yep, yep. Well, thank you. I'm going to bring it to a close because we're at time and I'm so happy uh, today on Two Worlds, One Country to have, have had Cody Lawning, a great friend and ally in the, in the ongoing struggle to understand and overcome the divides that plague our country, including the rural-urban divide. So, Cody, thanks so much for taking the time to be on Two Worlds. Really my pleasure, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, great. Folks, you're listening to Two Worlds, One Country, a program on WEHC and WISE, and on podcasts where over 1.9 billion people routinely listen to our program. So I hope, I hope you'll tell your friends and neighbors so we can hit that two billion mark. Cody, thanks again. Thank you, Anthony. All right, bye-bye. Undivided. Yeah.